Section 36 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11, The Catholic Kings, by H. Butler Clark, Part 2. The natural products of Spain are as varied as her climates, but her chief riches have always been cattle, corn, wine, and minerals. Cattle breeding was specially favored by legislators because of the ease with which its stock could be put beyond reach of invaders. Climate made a change of pasturage necessary in spring and autumn. So long as the land was thinly populated, this was an easy matter. When agriculture became general, the rich owners of the migratory flocks formed a guild for the protection of their traditional rights and obtained many privileges injurious to cultivators. The enclosure of waste lands was forbidden, and broad tracts were reserved, even through the richest valleys, to provide pasturage for the traveling flocks. In spring and after harvest, they ranged at will through cornlands and vineyards. Nevertheless, at the end of the 15th century, Castile still exported corn, while Aragon and even Valencia, in spite of the fabulous richness of its irrigated fields, were forced to import from the Balearic Islands and Sicily. In 1480, the export duty on food passing from Castile to Aragon was abolished. The result was a revival of agriculture, particularly in Murcia. But the flocks diminished, and the policy of protecting them was resumed. For many years the Spaniards in America, intent upon nothing but the finding of gold, imported the necessaries of life from the mother country. Until 1529, the trade with the Indies was reserved exclusively to Seville, and the result was a great development of corn and wine growing in parts of Andalusia. But agriculture was ruined by the Alcabala, a tax of one-tenth on all sales. Bread paid three times over as corn, as meal, and as manufactured. To remedy this, the Alcabala was assessed at a fixed sum levied by districts, 1494. But now a larger horizon was beginning to dawn. Brilliant actions took place in the New World and in Italy, and agriculture still remained neglected. Gold began to be imported in large quantities, and prices trebled. The evil was further increased by disturbances among the industrious moriscos, by bad seasons and by the ruinous policy of fixing a maximum price, which still further depressed the greatest national industry and drove the country population to the towns, which overflowed with beggars. Spain's position made her a natural halfway house for seaborne trade between the Mediterranean and Atlantic. Her exports were chiefly raw products, silk, fruit, and oil from the south, iron, wool, wine, and leather from the north. By prohibiting the export of gold and silver, 
and by the imposition of heavy export and import dues, it was sought to encourage manufacturers and to prevent the necessity of buying back home products manufactured abroad. In spite of repeated protests of the Cortes, the settlement of foreign artisans was encouraged by the kings. Manufacturers, chiefly wool and silk, increased tenfold in the course of a century. The great fairs drew buyers from foreign lands. It seemed as though the inborn Spanish dislike of commerce and industry had been overcome. But the progress which thus manifested itself was not destined to endure. The revolt of the comuneros, to be noticed below, ultimately resulted in the partial ruin of a rising middle class. The most enterprising of the population emigrated as soldiers or settlers, and the great discoveries of precious metals in America raised prices to such a pitch that Spanish goods could no longer compete in foreign markets. A mistaken economic policy led to a neglect of the objects in favor of the means of exchange and encouraged the accumulation of unproductive wealth. Nevertheless, a fictitious prosperity was for a time maintained. The period of Spain's greatest commercial energy falls within the reign of Charles I. It has been supposed that Spanish population sank rapidly during the first half of the 16th century. The data on which this calculation was made have, however, been proved to be misleading. It is probable that population remained nearly stationary at about 8 millions, or somewhat less than half its present amount. Trade was hampered by a coinage made up of foreign pieces of various values and of debased money issued from local and private mints. Ferdinand and Isabel asserted their exclusive right of minting and established a high standard in their ducats, 1476. These ducats were coined at the rate of 65 and one-third from a mark of gold of the standard of 23 and three-quarter carats. The silver coin of these sovereigns was the real, 67 to the mark of silver, the standard being 67 parts out of 72. The Maravedi, one 375th of the ducat, was the basis of calculation. There was, however, no actual coin of this value or name, but the real was worth 34 Maravedis. In 1518, the money of Aragon was made uniform with that of Castile. The chief sources of revenue were the dues and rents of the crown lands and the Alcabala. The last-named, a tax of a tithe on all sales, was in 1494 commuted for a fixed sum assessed on districts. Isabel's will forbade alteration of its amount, but a new assessment was made in 1512. To these sources of revenue has to be added extraordinary supply, the one direct impost. In Castile, this amounted to 50 millions of maravedis yearly. Under Charles, an additional supply was demanded. The total supply received by the crown of Aragon 
amounted to less than one-fifth of that received by the crown of Castile, and the whole sum was less than a quarter of that produced by the Alcabala. Customs dues, the sale of indulgences under a constantly renewed bull of crusade, the revenues of the grand masterships, the tax of two-ninths on ecclesiastical tithes, and the king's fifth of the gold of the Indies, brought up the revenue at the beginning of Charles's reign to about six hundred millions maravedis. Almost the whole of this was farmed by Jews and Genoese, and above all, by the fugas. When it proved insufficient, fines were levied for a renewal of the assessment of the Alcabala, and loans were raised at high rates of interest. The law forbidding alienation of the royal patrimony was constantly infringed. Charles sold royal and municipal offices, letters of naturalization and legitimacy and patents of nobility. Though the sum produced by the taxes increased thirty-fold within sixty years, the burdens on the people were not augmented in like proportion. Much alienated revenue was recovered. The value of gold sank to less than a third. Industry and commerce had vastly increased. The exemption of the nobles and of certain districts and towns from direct taxation was, financially, not very important. A source of much injustice was the lack of a recognized code of laws. Since the promulgation, 1348, of the partidas and ordenamiento de Alcalá as supplementary to municipal law, a great number of statutes had been enacted, while others had fallen into disuse without being repealed. Isabel sought to remedy the confusion by ordering the scattered decrees to be collected and printed in the Ordenamiento de Montalvo, 1485. But neither this nor a further collection, 1503, proved satisfactory. Montalvo's book left many important matters doubtful, and the laws it contained were not faithfully transcribed. Isabel's will, 1504, provided for the continuation of the work of unification. The result was the Laws of Toro, 1505, a further attempt to reconcile conflicting legislation. The Cortes of 1523 still complained of the evil, nor was it remedied until the publication of the Nueva Recopilación, 1567. Under firm government, the country recovered rapidly from its exhaustion, and reconquest was again taken in hand. For ten years, 1481 to 91, it was carried on untiringly by the heroic resolution of Isabel and the stubborn valor of Ferdinand. In spite of disasters like that of the Asarquia, 1483, and obstinate resistance like that of Baza, 1489, and notwithstanding the enormous difficulties of transport, the slender resources of the crown and the unserviceable nature of their feudal army, the kingdom of Granada fell piecemeal into the hands of the Catholic kings. Owing to internal feuds and the treachery of the last of its Nazarite dynasty, 
not more than half of its natural defenders were ranged at one time against the Christians. Some cities, like Malaga, were treated with great harshness, while others capitulated on favorable terms. For the victor was eager to press forward, and it lay with him to decide whether or not he would be bound by his word. At last, the city of Granada, isolated and helpless, submitted almost without a struggle, 1492. The terms of capitulation included a guarantee of the lives and property of the citizens, with full enjoyment of civil and religious liberty, the right to elect magistrates to administer the existing laws, and exemption from increase of the customary taxation. Ferdinand thus sought to gain time to establish his authority over the excitable and still formidable population. Even before the fall of Granada, the problem of the alien races had presented itself. Living under the special protection of the crown, the Jews in Spain, in spite of occasional massacres and repressive edicts, enjoyed great prosperity and were very numerous. They controlled finance, and had made their way even into the royal council. The noblest families were not free from the taint of Jewish blood, and it was known that many professing Christians shared their beliefs. In 1478, a bull granted at the request of Ferdinand and Isabel established in Castile the Inquisition, a tribunal founded in the 13th century for the repression of heresy, its object was now to detect and punish Jews who had adopted Christianity, but had afterwards relapsed. Two years of grace were allowed for recantation. In 1481, the Inquisition began its work at Seville. In 1483, in spite of protests on the ground of illegality, it was extended to Aragon, where the first inquisitor, St. Peter Arbuis, was murdered in the cathedral of Saragossa, 1485. Under the presidency of Torquemada, 1482-94, the Inquisition distinguished itself by the startling severity of its cruel and humiliating autos and reconciliations. Sixtus IV made several attempts, 1482-3, to check the deadly work, but was obliged by pressure from Spain to deny the right of appeal to himself. The inquisitors were appointed by the crown, which profited by their ruthless confiscations. Their proceedings checked instead of promoting conversion, and a large body of professing Jews remained isolated and stubborn among the Christian population. Against these was turned the religious and national enthusiasm that greeted the fall of the last stronghold of the infidel. The achievement of political unity made the lack of religious unity more apparent. It was rumored that the Jews were carrying on an active propaganda. Old calumnies were revived. They were accused of plotting against the state, of sacrificing Christian children, and of torturing and insulting the host. In 1478, an edict expelled them from Seville and Cordova. The severest repressive measures were renewed in 1480 and in March 1492. In spite of Ferdinand's protest, the Jews of Castile were bidden 
to choose within four months between baptism and exile. On the strength of an existing law prohibiting the export of precious metals, they were stripped of a great part of their wealth, and many hundred thousands quitted Spain. The treasury seized their abandoned property, but Spain was the poorer for the loss of a thrifty and industrious population. The work of the Inquisition now increased. Many of the exiles returned as professing Christians, while many suspected families of converts had been left behind. Pedigrees were subjected to the closest scrutiny. Not even the highest position in the church or the most saintly life secured those whose blood was tainted from cruel persecution. Even if their faith was beyond suspicion, they were made social outcasts. Statutes as to purity of blood excluded them in spite of the protests of the church, at first from universities, chapters and public offices, and later even from religious congregations and trade guilds. Torquemada died in 1498, but the persecution went on until Cordova rose against the fierce and fanatical Lucero, 1506-7. Ximenez became Grand Inquisitor, 1507, and the tribunal became less savage, while its sphere of activity widened. At the beginning of the century, the baptized Saracens had been placed under its authority. When Islam was proscribed throughout Castile, 1502, the Inquisition stamped out its last embers by methods hardly less rigorous than those directed against the Jews. Afterwards, it was employed to further absolutism in church and state. Such are the passions roused by the very name of the Inquisition that it is difficult to judge its work. The Jesuit Mariana, a bold and impartial critic, calls it, quote, a present remedy given by heaven against threatened ills, end quote. He admits, however, that the cure was a costly one, that the good name, life and fortune of all, lay in the hands of the inquisitors, that its visitation of the sins of fathers upon children, its cruel punishments, its secret proceedings and prying methods caused universal alarm, and that its tyranny was regarded by many as worse than death. For nearly eight years after its conquest, the kingdom of Granada was ruled with firmness and moderation by its captain-general, the Count of Tendilla, and by Talavera, archbishop of the newly created see. The capitulation had been respected. Men's minds were reassured, and many who had at first preferred exile to submission had returned. Talavera, a man of earnest but mild temper, devoted all his energies to the conversion of the Muslims. He secured their confidence and respect, and by encouraging the study of Arabic, partly broke down the barrier of language. Already the results of his good work were apparent when his persuasive and forbearing policy was abandoned. To the religious advisers of the Queen, the results attained seemed paltry. Shocked at what they considered a stubborn rejection of evident truths, they regarded the respect shown to the religious and social peculiarities of the Muslims as impious trafficking with evil 
while the salvation of thousands was at stake. Ximenez shared the fanaticism of his age and country. Having obtained a commission to aid the archbishop in his work, he assembled the Muslim doctors, harangued, flattered, and bribed them till many received baptism, 1499. Still unsatisfied, he adopted more violent measures. He began to ill-treat the descendants of renegades and to tear their children from them. He imprisoned the more obstinate of his opponents and confiscated and publicly burned all books treating of their religion. A savage revolt within the city was quelled only by the influence of the captain-general and the archbishop. Ximenez, when recalled to court to be reprimanded for his high-handed action, succeeded in winning over the queen to his views. A commission was sent to punish a revolt provoked by the infraction of guaranteed rights. It was evident that the capitulation was no longer to be respected, and while thousands, cowed but unconvinced, received baptism, others quitted Spain for Africa. The districts round Granada showed none of the submissive spirit of the city. On hearing of the injustice done to their fellow countrymen, the mountaineers of the Alpujaras revolted, and the Count of Tendilla, with Gonzalo de Córdoba, then a young soldier, undertook a difficult and dangerous campaign in an almost inaccessible region. In the spring of 1500, Ferdinand himself assumed the command, and the rebellion was crushed out by irresistibly superior forces. Each little town perched upon its crag had to be stormed. Men taken with arms in their hands were butchered as rebels. The survivors were punished by enormous fines and cajoled or forced to receive baptism. No sooner was this rising repressed than a still more formidable one broke out in the Sierra Bermeja on the western side of the kingdom. Christians were tortured and murdered, and the alarm was increased by the belief that the rebels were in communication with Africa. A splendid force, hastily raised in Andalusia, marched into the fastnesses of the mountains, but becoming entangled among passes where the heavy-armed horsemen were helpless, it was nearly exterminated at Rio Verde, March 1501. The rebels, however, were terrified by their success. The revolt spread no further, and when Ferdinand hurried to Ronda, prepared for a campaign, they sued for peace. Again, the choice between baptism and exile was offered, and thousands quitted the country. In July 1501, the whole kingdom of Granada was declared to be Christian, and the only Muslim element left within the realms of Castile consisted of small groups settled in cities even as far north as Burgos and Zamora under the protection of the crown. These mudejares were now forbidden to communicate with their newly converted brethren of the south. Six months later, all who refused to become Christians were banished. In Aragon and Valencia, the mudejares were allowed, for a time, the private exercise of their religion. 
the harsh treatment of the Saracens seemed justified by fear of their numbers and of their intrigues with the African corsairs. They sank into a state of serfdom, being left dependent for protection upon the landowners who throve on their industry. Even so, they clung to their faith, and the Inquisition found a hundred years insufficient for rooting it out. The results of intolerance are still to be traced in the wide wastes, once rich in corn, vine, and olive, of central and southern Spain. While the rest of the land had been won back in a half-ruined and desolate state, Granada was seized in full prosperity, but even she was not spared. Profiting by the eagerness of the King of France to settle outstanding differences before invading Italy, Ferdinand, in 1493, recovered by negotiation the counties of Roussillon and Cerdagne, which had been pledged by his father to Louis XI. In 1494, following the traditions of the crown of Aragon, he began actively to interfere in European politics by forming the League of Venice, for the purpose of driving the French out of Italy. A period of peace followed the death of Charles VIII, 1498. When the war was resumed, the crown of Naples was added by the great captain Gonzalo de Cordova to those of Castile, Aragon, and Sicily, 1503. The new world had been discovered, but its supreme importance was misunderstood. Spain was embarked upon the current of European politics, which was to drag her to her ruin. Defeated in Italy and baffled in negotiation, the French king decided to carry the war into the enemy's country. In the autumn of 1503, two armies set out to invade Spain, one through the western passes of the Pyrenees, and the other, supported by a fleet, through the eastern. The former never reached its destination. The latter entered Roussillon unopposed, but wasted time in besieging the castle of Salsas near Perpignan until Ferdinand marched to its relief. The French retreated to Narbonne without fighting. The loss of the fleet in a storm completed the disaster of the French, and a humiliating peace ended the war. In 1496 were negotiated the marriages which eventually gave the crown of Spain to the House of Austria. Juan, only son of Ferdinand and Isabel, married Margaret, daughter of Maximilian, Archduke of Austria and King of the Romans. His sister Juana married Maximilian's son Philip the Fair, who had inherited, 1493, from his mother, the Netherlands, Flanders, Artois, and Franche-Comte. The death of the Infante Juan left his sister Isabel, Queen of Portugal, heiress apparent to the throne of Castile, 1497. By her death, 1498, and that of her infant son, 1500, the hope of the union of the whole peninsula under one crown was defeated. The succession fell to Juana and her husband Philip, from the first, their marriage had been an unhappy one. Philip gave his wife abundant cause for jealousy and repressed her violent outbreaks by making her a prisoner within her palace. 
her mind became disordered, and she soon showed signs of the intermittent insanity which later overtook her. It became necessary for Juana and Philip to visit Spain to receive the oath of allegiance as heirs to the crown, but Philip delayed till the end of the year 1501, and caused additional displeasure by seeking the friendship of Louis XII and doing formal homage to him as he passed through France. The Cortes of Castile swore allegiance to Juana and her husband at Toledo, 1502. The Cortes of Aragon, which had previously refused to acknowledge her sister Isabel, alleging that females were excluded from the succession, now took the usual oath. At the beginning of 1503, Philip quitted Spain, leaving his wife with her parents. He again passed through France and concluded a peace with King Louis. But this peace, Ferdinand, on hearing news of the victories of the great captain, repudiated, alleging that Philip had exceeded his instructions. The war in Italy went on as before. After the birth of Ferdinand, her second son, Juana's insanity increased. In March 1504, she quitted Spain against her mother's will, leaving her in feeble health. Isabel was broken by long years of toil and by family sorrows. She died of dropsy at the end of the year. The character of the great queen is well described in the simple words of Guicciardini, quote, a great lover of justice, most modest in her person, she made herself much loved and feared by her subjects. She was greedy of glory, generous and by nature very frank. End quote. Her will named Juana as her successor, but a codicil directed quote, that Don Fernando should govern the realm during the absence of Queen Juana, and that if on her arrival she should be unwilling or unable to govern, Don Fernando should govern. End quote. Ferdinand proclaimed Juana and Philip and undertook the regency, but Isabel's death marks the beginning of a period of anarchy, which lasted until Charles established his rule, 1523. The year 1505 was spent in plots and counterplots. Philip, supported by a strong party in Spain, attempted to drive out Ferdinand. Instigated by Don Juan Manuel, he intrigued with Gonzalo de Cordova and with the King of France. Ferdinand, on his side, was ready to sacrifice the union of Spain to private ambition. His first plan was to marry and revive the claims of Princess Juana, la Beltraneja. When this failed, he married Germain de Foix, niece to the King of France, October 1505. King Louis made over to her as dowry his claims on the disputed portions of the Kingdom of Naples with reversion to the French crown should the Union prove childless. In this way, Ferdinand broke up the dangerous alliance between Louis, Philip, and Maximilian, but he also alienated from his cause a large portion of the Castilians who regarded his hasty marriage as an insult to the memory of their queen. At the same time, Philip's agents in Spain were undermining Ferdinand's authority and had won over many of the nobles of Andalusia. 
for he was still regarded as a foreigner in the land which he had so long ruled, and his harsh, suspicious, and niggardly nature increased his unpopularity. By the Treaty of Salamanca, November 1505, it was agreed that Ferdinand, Juana, and Philip should rule jointly and divide the revenues and patronage. In the following spring, Philip was obliged, by stress of weather, to land at Coruna. It had been his intention to sail round to Seville and collect his partisans, since neither party meant to abide by the agreement. Ferdinand hastened to meet his son-in-law, but Philip evaded an interview, for every day more grandees joined him, and he would soon be able to dictate his own terms. When the meeting actually took place, June, Ferdinand's following was reduced to three or four old friends, and he was compelled to declare that, owing to Juana's infirmity, her interference would be disastrous to the kingdom. In consideration of a pension, he gave up the regency and sulkily withdrew into Aragon with his young wife, and otherwise unaccompanied, quote, holding it unworthy to exercise delegated powers in realms over which he had been absolute king, end quote. He was welcomed by the Aragonese, who rejoiced to have shaken off the union with the preponderating power of Castile. Shortly afterwards, he sailed for Naples, where the conduct of Gonzalo de Cordova had excited his suspicions. In July, Philip met the Castilian Cortes at Valladolid. Aided by Jimenez, he attempted to have his wife declared incapable of governing, but he was successfully opposed by a party led by the Admiral of Castile, Juana was acknowledged as queen in her own right, Philip as king by right of marriage, and their infant son, Charles, as heir to the throne. Acting in his wife's name, Philip hereupon conferred the offices of state and wardenships of the royal castles on members of his own party. The malcontents began to draw together to liberate the queen, whom they believed to be sane, and a prisoner in the hands of her husband. The threatened rebellion was, however, for the moment arrested, and Philip was called away northward to watch the frontier. He evaded the danger of invasion by means of a treaty with the French king, from which Ferdinand was excluded. In September 1506, Philip died suddenly at Burgos, leaving Spain in a ferment of rival factions. Within Castile, no authority existed, for Juana refused to act. The grandees nominated Jimenez with six members of the council to carry on the regency until the guardianship of the infant heir to the throne should be decided. They summoned the Cortes, but their summons was disregarded as unconstitutional. Ferdinand had already reached Italy when the news overtook him. He sent a commission to Jimenez to carry on the government during his absence. On his return to Spain, July 1507, he crushed the party, headed by Juan Manuel, which supported the claim of Maximilian to act as regent for his daughter-in-law and grandson. Ferdinand's position was a strong one, for the event foreseen in Isabel's will had come to pass. 
Juana, wandering from village to village with the weird procession that bore her husband's corpse, stubbornly refused to sign papers of state. Most of the Flemish party fled. Then Burgos and Jaén, held for a time in Maximilian's interest, submitted, and calm fell upon Castile, for the majority welcomed the prospect of speedy repression of the disorder which had broken out during Ferdinand's absence. After a meeting with Juana, who refused to lend herself to his schemes by marrying Henry of England, he gave out that she had resigned the government to him, and thus remained undisputed master of the kingdom. Ferdinand showed no wish to avenge himself upon those who had driven him with ignominy from the kingdom, but bore himself ruthlessly towards those who now questioned his authority. Don Juan Manuel had fled. The Duke of Nagera refused to deliver up his fortresses, but when an army was sent against him, he submitted, and his lands and titles were given to his eldest son. At Cordova, the Marquis of Priego revolted. Ferdinand called out all Andalusia to crush him. He threw himself on the king's mercy, but was condemned to death. The interest of the great captain, his kinsman, availed only to obtain a commutation of his sentence to confiscation, fine, and banishment. Although the suspicions against him were probably groundless, the great captain felt the weight of Ferdinand's jealousy. They had returned from Italy together, and Ferdinand had shown him all deference and had promised him the grand mastership of Santiago, but the promise was never fulfilled. He was treated with marked coolness and withdrew to his estates near Loja, where he ended his days in haughty and magnificent retirement. Once only, after the Battle of Ravenna, 1512, when it was believed that he alone could save Spain's possessions in Italy, he received a commission to enlist troops. Thousands had already joined his banner when the danger passed away, and Ferdinand, alarmed and jealous, withdrew his commission. End of section 36 Recording by Linda Johnson